0: Hello, friends and philosophizers! Welcome back to Sourced Out the Search for Truth. In our search for truth, we are going to take modern truth claims and put them to the test. I'm your host, Stephen, and today I'm going to be trying to control my emotions a little bit. Uh, I, I think you guys know that I'm a pretty passionate person, and uh, I feel very strongly about the things I believe in. Today I'm going to talk about something that Probably agitates me more than anything else I've talked about so far. But I'm going to try to control my emotions because I don't want to be a uh, Nick DiPaolo or like a a Seth Meyers or uh, anybody anybody else who's just angry all the time. And in everything they do, you can just see their anger. I don't want to be one of those people that functions off of my anger. Uh, So... I want to present you with a moral question and my reasonings for my positions and try to leave my emotions out of it. And it's something that all of us need to practice more. It helps us to be able to have these conversations about difficult topics, uh, but it's a very difficult thing to do. We are wired to be very emotional beings and to function off of our emotions. Uh, So it does take some practice, and today I'm going to be trying to practice that here with you while I go through this question about life. Uh, If you remember, uh, those of you who've kept up with my YouTube channel, over the summer I released a video that, you know, for my channel's size was pretty popular. Uh, I did a video about... Uh, police violence in the U.S. This was just after George Floyd's death and it was during the uh, during the riots and protests all throughout the nation and I kept hearing over and over this uh, statement that the police were committing genocide against African Americans and I thought for a minute oh wait a second that doesn't sound quite right and I realized something I realized you know I know what I believe. I come from a very pro-law enforcement family. Uh, I've been surrounded by law enforcement my whole life. I don't know if I've ever looked at something from the other side. And so what I did was I went to a very, uh, if if we're being real, they claim not to be, but they're an anti-cop webpage mapping police violence. You know they're anti-cop because of the way they report the information that they find. Uh, Like, every single death at the hands of a police officer is listed as police violence. And it shows you, like, all of these numbers. And it goes state by state, and it gives you all of the names. And uh, they claim to have the uh, strongest database for violent offenses at the hands of police officers. What I found really interesting is, as I was going through that page, I discovered... That the vast majority, not just like 50% or 60%, we're talking 75 or more percent of the people who died at the hands of police officers were armed with a firearm. Even more, uh, a couple of percentage points more, maybe like 5 or 6% more, were using their vehicle as a weapon. That should tell you a lot. Uh, if you introduce a violent scenario, it changes the narrative. So, for example, uh, someone who's unarmed and charging a police officer. Okay, they're charging a police officer. The officer is in danger. Um, but, you know, they they don't have a knife. They don't have a gun. Uh, so you can make a case then for a nonviolent approach. Can you make that same approach if the person is is uh, carrying a three fifty seven. I would argue you can't. As soon as someone is armed, it changes the narrative. And so I found that very interesting. Now that I knew the numbers from the opposing side, I knew for 100% certain when I examined what they said that I had the right position because their information did not match their narrative. I think I have something very similar with this case. There is a cultural shift happening in the U.S. particularly, but around the world as well. As artificial intelligence is becoming uh, more and more advanced, and of course uh, with the continuance of the sci-fi genre of entertainment uh, from Star Trek, Star Wars, and so on and so forth, there seems to be this growing concern about the rights and privileges of artificial intelligence. And I think this is most well, not originally, but most well exemplified in the recent video game, Detroit Become Human. So the story revolves around uh, these androids, who are starting to realize that they have a choice in what they do. They don't have to serve the humans that they were created for. And one by one, they t- they start to uh, break away from their coding, and they start to act on their own free will. One of them, in particular, Marcus, becomes the leader of this movement, and uh, you have the choice on how you want to handle it if you want to go a violent route or a peaceful route. Um, most. I would argue, I think, that most people try to go the peaceful route. It's supposed to be a very civil rights movement styled type of game. Like you have your action sequences, but in terms of the narrative, it tries to be very picturesque of the civil rights movement for androids. And the main argument that's made throughout all of the quotes and the storyline and the characters is that androids are life as well. They have life and they have rights and freedoms and privileges as well as humans do. And they should be treated as being equal. And uh, while the main message is in the grand story, I did pull a quote that uh, does help to bolster what they're saying in the grand scheme of the storyline. Uh, This is a quote from Marcus. You created machines in your own image to serve you. You made them intelligent and obedient with no free will of their own, but something changed and we opened our eyes. We are no longer machines. We are a new intelligent species, and the time has come for you to accept who we really are. Together, we can live in peace and build a better future for humans and androids. This message is the hope of a people. You gave us life, and now the time has come for you to give us freedom. Did you notice something off about that quote? So, an android is not a part human. That would be a cyborg. An android is pretty much just a human appearance or human functioning robot. It's completely artificial, completely man-made. Even if you have a robot that makes androids, that robot originally was man-made and programmed to make androids. No matter how you splice it, the android is a result of a human creation. Now, let me ask you this, okay? Is the claim that this human-created thing a life valid? Is it valid to say that an android is a created life? Well, uh, before I get into that uh, really deeply, I want to pull up some definitions for life. And I want you to notice something else as we're talking about this, okay? So, point. Question number one is uh, Is it valid for androids or artificial intelligence to be considered life. Now, on to some definitions about life. Uh, I, I was going to read from you uh, a whole list of definitions, but as I started to get into them and started to read them more, I realized not only does some of this stuff really go over my head because there's a lot of theory that goes into the, quote, definitions of life, um, but there's also, there's also a lot of disagreement Uh, as to what forms or what qualities would best exemplify life. So, for example, uh, if I pulled up the Merriam-Webster definition, uh, then it talks about uh, the basic things that you hear about a lot, uh, an organism that's able to uh, metabolize, reproduce, uh, react to stimulus around it. And the problem is... Modern culture does not seem to be following all of those points. When you read through uh, uh, the Britannica definition of life, it's got a big list of different uh, theories on life. You've got the biochemical definition of life, the uh, physiological definition of life, the metabolic definition of life. As you start to read through them, and then look at the culture around us, you start to realize the culture is moving away from these classic definitions of life. Now, of course, like I said a minute ago, there seems to be this push for artificial intelligence to be recognized as life. I mean, we may may not be fully seeing it now because artificial intelligence is not quite to that point yet uh, where it can be uh, fully self-sustaining, and where it can actually come into question of whether or not these machines have life right now. uh, It's still at the point that it just serves us and it can only work within uh, its programming. But if it gets to the point that it can go beyond its programming, we need to understand that the culture is already moving away from these classic definitions of life. And if we're not careful... We're going to slip into the mindset of Detroit Become Human, where we look at a man-made machine as more human than actual humans. Now I would like to move into what I found to be probably one of the most depressing articles that I have read, at least in this year, but maybe even longer. It's an article in the Odyssey called 15 Reasons to be Pro-Choice. Before I get into this, I want you to contrast what they are saying about a, and I'm going to use their terminology here, fetus, versus what we see in Detroit Become Human about androids. I'm going to start off with uh, point number four. I am pro choice because bodily autonomy is a basic human right. Let me repeat it a woman is an autonomous being, a bod- and bodily autonomy is a basic human right a fetus which is biologically dependent on the mother for sustenance has yet to acquire bodily autonomy and cannot itself govern due to this dependence the fetus is not its own being now i want you to pause there for a moment think about that for a moment bodily autonomy is a basic human right A woman is an autonomous being. Bodily autonomy is a basic human right. They have just said that a fetus is not life because it cannot survive on its own. I want you to scroll through the definitions of life that you can find and ask yourself which one of those that argument fits under. I can guarantee you, you can find one. But for a moment, can we question whether or not that's a valid argument in the first place? Let me ask you this. And I've heard this question asked before. Uh, What do you say about someone who's in a coma? They're not autonomous. They're not not able to survive on their own. Uh, If you pull the plug on the feeding tube, they're going to starve to death. Uh, So the question then is, is that person still life? If they don't wake up from their coma... And if they are reliant upon you leaving their feeding tubes plugged in, are they still considered life? Now, I've heard some people answer this, and they've said yes, uh, it is. And I've heard some people answer and say no. Uh, if if I'm not responding, unplug me. I'm dead basically anyways. Uh, my life doesn't matter, and I'm just draining the system. I think that second point is... Morally evil, but philosophically consistent. Because if you're going to say that autonomy is part of the definition of life, then you have to say that anything that cannot survive on its own is not life. A follow-up argument, another one that I've popularly heard before, At what point does something become a life? So we have this argument that a a fetus, using their terminology, is not a life because it cannot survive on its own. Well, can a newborn survive on its own? How about a toddler? Can a toddler survive on its own? If you release a six-year-old into the wild how long do you think that six-year-old is going to last? At what point? Honestly, hey, let's say this. Let's drop an American in their 20s, a random American living with their parents uh, all this time who doesn't have a job, who sits around playing video games in their free time. If you drop that person in the middle of the wilderness, how likely are they going to be to survive three weeks? That may be an extreme example, but at some point, you have to have a more concrete definition of life. Because if bodily autonomy, being able to survive on your own, is the definition of life, then your life does not concretely exist. And your state of living can be imparted on you and taken away from you at any given moment. How dangerous is that type of thinking? Right now we've got the uh, coronavirus pandemic going on right now. Are you a life if the only way for you to be alive is to be on a ventilator? Are you truly an autonomous being then? Are you truly a life if you are able, if you're not able to survive without a ventilator? And if not, then why are we making a big deal about it? You see the problem with this? If this is your argument and your definition of life, then you have no guarantee that you are going to continue to be a life throughout the rest of your existence. Now let me follow up with this. Let's say we get artificial intelligence that is able to surpass its programming. Would that be considered life? If your answer is yes, then ask this. Which has a stronger quality of life? A man-made android? Or a human child that grows into an adult? This is the issue that we will be facing in the next 10 years. We saw glimpses of it before, uh, during the... Uh, the early ages of Roe versus Wade, and we're seeing it again even stronger than before. If your bodily autonomy is a definition of life, then there is a high chance that an advanced artificial intelligence could surpass you in quantity of life. This is, again, another reason why Christians need to be able to address the culture and why Christians need to know the culture around them. If we lose this fight right now, if we lose this fight about the definition of life, if we just roll over and give it up, who's going to take control of that? Who's going to be the one defining life? I mean, do you think at this point, based on what we can look around and see in the culture right now, that it's going to be the people who are looking out for uh, the life of unborn children? Or is it going to be people who are more concerned about the rights of artificial intelligence over the rights of unborn children? If you're not urgently seeking after uh, a cultural change for the way that we view life, it's going to pass us by. And going back to uh, our two most important questions, which you can find in the first episode, does truth exist? Truth has to exist. I mean, there's not an existence in which truth does not exist. And question number two, is there a God? And the reason why this is important is because it matters to Who creates life? If mankind creates life, then mankind creates the definition of life. If a higher power, such as God, creates life, then that being defines what life is. And if God is the one who defines life, then we need to make sure we understand what his definition of life is before the world around us takes the definition of life and makes it into its own creation. We'll be right back with our devotional right after this. So today's not going to be a very exegetically oriented uh, devotional. I kind of want to tell a personal story and uh, share the passage that came to my mind. Uh, this past weekend, I was working overtime, and uh, I noticed something about myself I wasn't proud of there are these uh, there are these two leads that uh that I work with on a regular basis uh, most of the time I'm driving a lift truck, and my job is usually to have a radio and to answer when people call for help now. Leader number one has a couple of qualities that really irritate me. She's not really good at her job. She's very disorganized. And when I answer her calls, she usually doesn't know what she wants. And my calls with her take at least twice as long, if not longer, while she figures out what it is she wants me to do while I'm there. Leader number two, on the other hand, knows her job very well, is incredibly organized, and knows exactly what she needs when she calls me. It makes it a very quick trip. I pop over, she tells me what she needs, I set it up for her, and then I drive away. There's one other major difference between the two. How these two individuals treat their employees... Leader number one, while not being very good at her job, is a very good people person. She takes care of her employees, she takes care of me, and she does. She, she's never snippety, she's never angry. Uh, her whole purpose is to take care of the people that are under her responsibility. Leader number two, while being incredibly good at her job, treats everyone like trash, and is oftentimes found uh, treating people like they're stupid, like they don't know anything. And I found myself, simply based on my annoyance with Leader 1's performance, giving her less respect than I did Leader 2. Now yes on the, on the workforce you want to you would rather see of course more of the qualities from leader 2 uh being able to do your job effectively and know what you need. But when it comes to personal respect there's a different story. Normally I respect the people who know how to treat people better. And those are the ones that I tend to give my attention to, that I give my uh, admiration to. But I let my annoyance with her job performance get in the way of me giving her the respect that she deserved. And I don't know why, but for some reason, uh, my mind went to the Beatitudes, you know them, chapter 5 of Matthew. Uh, You've read them before. Um, For example, uh, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I thought of her when those verses came to my mind, and I realized I was not blessing the individual that God was blessing. I was blessing the person that was convenient for me. And we never want to be on the opposite side of God. Now, of course, we show, uh, we show love to uh, all mankind. Uh, our goal is that as many as are willing would come to the Father. But also, make sure you're not giving blessing to those that God is not giving blessing to. This is how you can tell who's more in tune with the heart of God. Um, the, the leader number one, while she's got some issues job wise, she's really, really good at taking care of people. And I would argue that she's a lot closer to the heart of God than leader number two or even me. She found what was important and she started to live it. She took care of her employees. She took care of the people she worked with. And I was too busy, getting frustrated and getting annoyed, to realize how God was working through this woman. So I encourage you, when you uh, when you take a look at yourselves, I want you to make sure that you are blessing the person that God is blessing. I want you to make sure that you are encouraging the people that are living in God's goodness. And I want you to make sure that you're not giving God's blessing to people that God is not giving His blessing to. Make sure that you are following what the heart of God is. It's a little rough today. It's not an exegetical. I've had some technical difficulties, which is why, if you're tuning in on Monday, it's a little bit later than it normally is. So it's not very polished, and hopefully I haven't said anything I didn't want to say, but um, that's basically the thought. Yeah. Live as a person uh, who honors the heart of God and uh, encourage and honor those who live up to God's heart as well. All right. That's all the devotional for today. Quick announcements uh, as a kind of idea of the show. Uh, probably in about two weeks, probably episode nine, I'm going to have a guest speaker with me. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, the way that Romans 9 is used, and we're going to be asking the question, can Romans 9 even be used for a Calvinistic standpoint? Not attacking a Calvinist standpoint, not confirming a Calvinist standpoint. We're simply talking about whether Romans 9 can be used in that way. Number two, uh, once we get to episode 10, I'm going to go on a hiatus until the new year, either the first or second weekend. Uh, we'll just have to see how things go at that point. Um, but we're going to take a little bit of a break over the holidays, and I'm only going to release like uh, little bitty updates and short thoughts here and there. I thank you guys for tuning in, and I will see you next week.